Real quick before we get to the show, we wanted to take a second to make sure that you've heard about a new podcast from the hosts of The Majority Report. It's Majority FM's AM Quickie, and it's the morning news podcast for progressives in the know. Each morning, Sam Cedar and comedian Lucy Steiner bring you the overlooked, underrated, and the otherwise forgotten stories that are essential to things like fighting capitalism, taking back democracy, and building a more equitable society, which is all stuff we love. And even better, it's all in five minutes before you're even out the door. In the lukewarm world of NPR and CNN, and Majority FM's AM Quickie lays out the day's headlines with some heat, letting progressives know how to navigate the endless news cycle while knowing what's right. Go to amquickie.com to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform today and brace yourself because here comes the intro music. Our guest today is the uh, esteemed and beloved Steve Keen. Why do I know that name? Hey, Annie, who is the number one requested guest from our listeners? Professor Steve Keen. It's like talking to Nick, but with, a, but with, with a an better Australian accent. accent. Somebody yeah. who sounds a lot smarter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just the Australian touch. Don't worry. But obviously, we're stupid given what's happened with climate change down in the country recently, so don't let it worry you. From the offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer. It's like Econ 101 without all the BS. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. So, Nick, on the last episode, we talked with uh, Trevor Corson and Anu Partnin about reimagining capitalism, and the capitalism they imagine is the one which, which they live in under right now in modern capitalist Finland. Yes. A capitalist paradise, as yes. they describe it. Correct. But as you know, uh, we say this a lot, in order to uh, rebuild, build a new capitalism and a new economics, part of that requires uh, taking down the old one. That's right. And our guest today is, is the uh, esteemed and loved, beloved Steve Keen. Steve Keen. Why do I know that name? Hey, Annie, who is the number one requested guest from our listeners? Professor Professor Steve, Steve Keen, Keen, who's been at this debunking capitalism thing yes, so long, he actually has a book and a podcast called Debunking Economics. Yes, and uh, it's embarrassing that we haven't had him on before, uh, but here he will be. And, you know, he has a very similar uh, diagnosis that we do in a lot of ways, that virtually all of the underlying assumptions of neoclassical economics are nonsense. Right. And, and that in order to understand economics in a useful way, you have to get rid of those assumptions and, and form new ones. And it'll be really interesting to hear from him, you know, what he's working on right now and how he's thinking about it and where he thinks the economics profession should go. Right. And, and of course, big difference between uh, him and us is that he's an actual economist. He is. And we don't mean that as a pejorative yeah. in this case. <laughs> Well, I'm Professor Steve Keane. I've been a, a critic of mainstream economics my entire academic and pre-academic career. 
uh, wrote the book called Debunking Economics. And what I've been trying to do is build a realistic economics, not caught up with what I call the, the neoclassical disease of believing you can make a simplifying assumption when your entire conclusions depend upon the assumption being true. Uh, and my current work is focusing upon climate change and the outrageously bad work done by neoclassicals like William Nordhaus on that front and trying to build a realistic monetary model of capitalism. Excellent. Well, let's start out with a general question, which is, you know, your career is focused largely on debunking neoclassical economics. So in broad terms, can you explain to Pitchfork Economics listeners how those bad theories became the basis for modern capitalism? Well, you have to go back to the 1870s, which was when Marx had just published uh, Das Kapital. And what he'd done is turn the previous classical school of economics, the school derived from Adam Smith and David Ricardo, from a defense of capitalism against feudalism to an attack on capitalism uh, from the point of view of a, a miserated working class. Uh, with the argument that capitalism would necessarily fail and give way to socialism. And what that meant was that the analytic tool that had really dominated economics for a century from, from Adam Smith uh, suddenly became a, a sort of toxic for capitalism instead. And there was a very rapid raising of the significance of a of a minority school of thought which originated in people like Jean-Baptiste Say and to some extent uh, Corneau in France, where they argued that capitalism was all about the maximization of utility and the whole idea of marginal this and marginal that, uh, which was sitting back with, with, uh, with Say, who was uh, also ran in the 18, 1820s. Uh, and became the, the the focus of economics. And there were three people who largely contributed to that. Uh, William Jevons in England, um, uh, 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 Menger in Austria, and Volra in France. And with Volra and Jevons, you had an attempt to mathematize the discipline. And that rapidly eliminated the classical school. And you had this instead this vision of capitalism as a utility-maximizing um, system all designed about achieving an equilibrium to maximize the, 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 the best welfare for the maximum number of people. And that would be nice if it were true. Uh, and the, in, in the 1870s, there was no uh, reason why you would reject that theory out of hand. But ever since the 1870s, every attempt that economists have made, neoclassical economists have made to formalize this system ends up generating contradictions, which they treat in the time-honored manner of completely ignoring them and going on anyway with yeah. the original beliefs. <laughs> and, uh, and that's what's irritated me so much because they keep on hitting mathematical conundrums and say, oh, well, let's assume X and jump over that conundrum. And you've ended up with this ridiculously elaborate vision of capitalism being inhabited by gods. Yes. otherwise known as rational agents. And their definition of rational, if you gave it to any sane human being and said, please provide me a word that fits this definition, their answer would be, oh, capable of accurate prophecy, a prophet. <laughs> Uh, and, and yet, because it's become such a persuasive, explains everything type discipline, uh, it, it's, it's rapidly believed by its adherents, and they simply reject out of hand all the criticisms that half the time they themselves have generated in the past. Yeah. It is a fascinating bit of work. Are you telling us it's not a science, a hard <laughs> science like physics? Uh, well, it's a science like a, like like uh, like Ptolemaic astronomy. Yeah, exactly. You have a system uh, with which you have observations to which you can fit a model which which fits the data and is completely wrong. Exactly. See, see Nick, you even use the same metaphors. I know. I know. But we use the same. It, it's like talking to Nick, but with a but with, with a an better Australian accent. accent. Somebody yeah. who sounds a lot smarter. <laughs> yeah. 
it's just the Australian touch. Don't worry. But we're obviously, we're stupid given what's happened with climate change down in the country recently. So don't let it worry you. So what we wanted to do was zoom in on the ways in which these bad economic models, this, this misunderstanding of how the economy works, mm. infected the institution of capitalism. Where did it go wrong and, and how do we get it right? Right, because one of the repeated themes of this podcast is that bad theories, bad stories lead to bad outcomes. So, so you've made it clear it's the, these are a bunch of bad theories. How did this take us wrong and leave us where we are today? Well, I'll choose my two favourite. No, they're the years I've worked in most in the last 20 or 30 years. One is the idea that the level of private debt doesn't matter. And this, so you can find this in Ben Bernanke, page 24. I've quoted the bloody thing so often I know the page reference by heart. Page 24 of his book, Essays on the Great Depression. And in that, he dismisses Irving Fisher's explanation for the, the Great Depression, uh, which was the debt deflation theory that said it was caused by too much debt and uh, too low level of inflation, leading to a runaway process of debtors paying off their debt and by doing so, reducing the money supply and actually causing the economy to continue going down even further. And Bernanke rejected that on the basis that, quote unquote, can I know it off by heart, pure redistributions should have no significant macroeconomic effect. In other words, they interpret uh, private debt as a uh, exchange between two non-bank entities where one non-bank lends another non-bank dollars the lender has less money to spend and therefore their demand falls. The borrower has more to spend and therefore theirs rises. And so therefore it cancels the each other out. Cancel, and it works in reverse as well. When you're paying the debt down, the person who gets repaid has more to spend and less. So you can forget about it. Now, that's that's their, their vision, which meant they completely ignored the increase in private debt from about 30% of GDP in America in 1945 to 170% shortly after the crisis. And the reason the crisis occurred was because it's banks that lend money. Banks create money when they lend. They also create additional aggregate demand because the person who borrows then spends that money. And that, that, that credit becomes a significant and ever-rising component of demand as the level of private debt rises. And it went from plus 15% of GDP to minus 5 over the financial crisis. That's what caused it. And they not only did they let us walk into it blindfolded, they haven't realised that it was the cause of it after the crisis, even after the crisis occurred. So we've still got too high a level of private debt in the aftermath, which is why we have so-called secular stagnation. That's what I thought would be the most outrageous example. Uh, but it gets even worse when I look at climate change. So you said so-called secular stagnation. What is it really? Yeah, I mean, it's not secular stagnation. It's credit stagnation. If you look at where uh, credit stagnation came from, that was the theory that Alvin Hansen came up, I think, first with in 1933 or 34, and then again in 37. And the reason it became uh, current was that that was the explanation he had for the Great Depression. And it really comes down to saying that the reason the crisis occurred was that parents stopped having enough babies and engineers stopped having enough ideas and therefore the rate of growth dropped. That's really, that's, that's a, you know, a, a slang summary of the theory. And he came up with it the second time in 1937 because what really happened is that Roosevelt had been persuaded to go from running a budget deficit and stimulating the economy through the New Deal to trying to bring the government books back into balance again. And by doing that, uh, took about 3% of demand out of the economy. 
And the response of the private sector, which still had too much debt, was to start deleveraging as well. And the double whammy of the two reduced demand once more. And you went from 11 percent unemployment, which is where it had fallen to from the peak of 25 percent in 33, 11 percent back to 20 percent again. And they just gave their hands up in horror and said, we don't know what the hell's going on. That's when Keynes turned up and they, they started calling themselves Keynesians. But it, it was an explanation blaming non-economic factors for an economic crisis. Too low a population growth rate, too low a level of technical change. Of course, after the Second World War, that became nonsense. The idea was thoughten. Then we go through another financial crisis, and what do we do? But Larry Summers dreaming up yet again secular stagnation, blaming engineers and parents for not enough ideas and not enough kids. Um, the reality is that we had we have the, the capitalist economy normally has credit as part of its aggregate demand. Um, when you get, if you keep the debt levels at a low level, then the credit can continue being part of a positive contribution demand most of the time. Um, but when you've got this massive runaway, like a five-fold increase in the level of private debt, uh, then credit, I define debt as the dollars you owe and credit as the change in the debt you owe. So debt, credit is change in debt per year. And when it went from plus 15% back in 2007 to minus five in 2010, that drastic cut, uh, that's what caused the Great Recession. I substantially agree with your analysis, but mm. there's another couple of trillion dollars per year in the American economy alone that can be accounted for in the upwards redistribution of, of wages from ordinary Americans to the top 1%. And that accounts for, you know, 10% of aggregate demand on a $20 trillion economy. Yeah. What I find frustrating about Larry Summers' analysis is he, he doesn't account for 40 years of wage stagnation in his analysis because, of course, the system is Pareto optimal and equilibrium and people are getting paid what they're worth, right? Yeah, that, exactly, so including you, him. Yeah. Exactly. And so <laughs> if you believe all that nonsense, then you can't conceive of a world, people who are presently being paid $7.25 because that's a national minimum wage, instead were earning $30 an hour and could actually afford to buy them themselves the things that let them get by in life. Yeah, no, that, that's, I completely agree with that. And ironically, the reason that I, I first spotted this when I did my model of uh, Minsky's financial instability hypothesis back in 1992, published in 95. And in that model, I had a very stylized system having uh, firms that borrow money to invest in factories, so no Ponzi investing, direct, directly in producing extra uh, capital equipment, workers simply receiving a wage and spending the wage, bankers receiving interest and spending the interest. But so the firms were borrowing the money. Now, when when I had the, the, the model run in such a way that the economy head, headed towards an equilibrium, then there was a stabilization of income distribution shares as well. You've got capitalists getting a set percentage, workers a set percentage, and banking's getting the remainder. When you had the debt bubbling up every year, levering up in the way that Minsky's hypothesis talked about it, so you had a boom and a bust, and during the boom, firms would borrow more money than they could repay during the bust, and so you had a, a ratcheting up of debt over time. In that process, even though the firms are the ones doing the borrowing the money, the, the class, social class that lost income share were the workers. So the, it isn't just that there's, look, they're not two independent factors. Partly the crushing of workers' share of wages is through the, the crushing of the union movement, which of course is another part of neoclassical yeah. economics. But it's also the increase in private debt through the complex dynamics of capitalism leads to a decline in workers' share of income. 
So they are tied together. They're definitely quite right with the income distribution shift as well is a major reason why the economy is so sclerotic. Right. But but I'll, I'll just play uh, devil's advocate here or neoclassical economics uh, advocate here. When people like Nick get wealthier, don't they just reinvest that in the economy and creating great jobs for people like me? Well, they 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 spend their, their their rate of investment, the rate of turnover of money is far lower than the workers. Uh, I'm just actually building, a, I'm doing a cartoon book on money right now uh, for a Kickstarter campaign, and uh, as part of that, I have I've got a, a simple model I built in my Minsky software of workers spending the money they've got, capitalists spending their money, yada yada yada. When you look at the rate at which workers are spending, uh, they spend their their bank accounts the rate like about 17 times their bank accounts per year because they're in the Mighty little model they've got they've only got 20 they've got 20 billion in their account in this mythical economy but they're spending 300 billion in terms of spending all their wages capitalists have got 100 billion are spending 50 so what you get is uh, the, the the wealthy spend their money more slowly and if if you change the distribution of income you dramatically increase how much money is turned over yeah, and the that velocity goes GDP. way way up yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Right. And we've and seen, we've seen that dramatic, yeah, yeah. dramatic decline in velocity over the last 30, 40 years. Right. So what the professor is telling you, Nick, is for the good of the economy, I should double you need your to salary. give us all raises. I know. I know. I know. Okay. So every day I hear that. <laughs> or eat more hamburgers. <laughs> so so speaking of improving the economy, <laughs> let's move on to given the uh, how erroneous neoclassical economics is and the policies that we've built on it. Let's pivot here to what we need to do differently to address challenges like uh, climate change and the growing inequality and all the other problems we're facing uh, in the economy and the world today. What would a new economics start to look like? For the first thing it has to be do is, is based on the physical world. Uh, because the neoclassical economists live in what I think uh, Mark Blog described as a blackboard economy, where they use terms like uh, GDP and wa wages and profits and stuff like that that sounds like the real world. And yet what they, the model they build is utterly and scandalously unrepresentative of any actual real economy. And the fundamental way they do that, and it's not just neoclassicals who are guilty here, I take it right back to Smith and I include the classical school and I include Marxists and I include post-Keynesians as well. None of us have properly included the role of energy in production. And if, what that means is we imagine you can produce output without energy as an input. Now, that is the best way to describe it is total garbage. It's nonsense. With no energy input, you get no output. So, and the only people, the only school of thought that actually had that intelligently was the physiocratic school, with people like Kinney and Cantillon long before um, Smith came along. And in fact, Smith managed to distort their theories. If you look at Smith's Wealth of Nations, uh, it's exactly the same as Richard Cantillon's essay on, on production, only where uh, Cantillon talks about uh, wealth coming from the land. Smith talks about it coming from division of labor. Now, that, that simple shift meant that we ignored the role of nature and in making it possible to produce output. In the modern world, they have models of production involving labor and capital, but no energy. Now, if you, my, my, the way that I've realized a, a way to formalize the role of energy and bring it back in the way that the physiocrats had it in a more up-to-date way was a little vision, uh, a little, little um, two-liner, that labor without energy is a corpse and capital without energy is a sculpture. 
And if you want to activate them both, you've got to have energy inputs into them. And that then means that, first of all, you see you've got to be taking stuff out of nature, you know, the mining the, the coal and everything else and to, to activate the machinery. And secondly, when you do that, you're going to have waste. And the combination of the two means that you, you tie economics and ecology together right from the outset. So that's absolutely essential. And the second element is you, you have to be get away from this fetish on equilibrium. Uh, what was an intellectual crutch in the 19th century has become a fetish in the 20th and 21st for economists. The, the last way, way you'd ever describe capitalism as being an equilibrium, you know, I mean, you ask anybody to describe this system, they're not going to say equilibrium. They're going to say change, volatility. Yeah. Um, you know, so the, the, the mental construct to make it possible to do mathematics of intersecting lines in the 19th century has completely corrupted the way economists think about the actual economy, and they pretend that it reaches equilibrium, which is nonsense. We love to remind our listeners that if you want to imagine a true equilibrium system, it's the surface of the moon. <laughs> Right. No, no, no. That's at least two or three degrees Kelvin too high. <laughs> yeah, okay. right. it's, you've got to be at absolute zero to be in genuine so, equilibrium. Exactly. So, so essentially, the old economics is based on the first rule of thermodynamics, and the new economics should be based on the second rule. It's all about entropy. You're being too generous. They don't even know what the first law is. Yeah. Uh, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I've literally I've had a conversation with the United Nations Environment Program, chief economist at one stage when I was showing a research project with Australia's CSIRO, the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization on future prospects for the Southeast Asian economy. And at one point he said, well, if you don't have enough energy, we can make it using labor and capital. <laughs> now, that only a PhD in economics can make you that stupid. <laughs> That's oh, beautiful. You know, Steve, I just uh, we want to keep grinding on uh, how to change the world. But I do want to append one thought to your criticism of equilibrium, which is that it, it's worse than being wrong. I mean, it's just it's just an objectively inaccurate way of describing a human economy. But yeah, worse than that, it's evil because the most powerful idea ever invented by economic elites to enforce the existing status constructs was the notion of equilibrium, that the economy was this Pareto optimal equilibrium system that was efficiently allocating resources in a way that was best for everyone. And any change to it would decrease welfare for all is mm. the ultimate way to protect the status quo to ensure Absolutely. that rich people stay rich and poor people stay poor. Because yeah, if you're in equilibrium, why change? Why change? So, why change? In fact, it's worse than why change. It's that we are all at risk if we change. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and exactly. that idea is so pernicious and damaging to increasing justice in the world and making a society that can actually solve its problems for the majority of its citizens. Yeah, I completely agree. And that's, uh, I mean, the whole idea that income is meritocratic as well, which is the marginal productivity theory of income distribution. Uh, that's That was torn apart by Schraffer right back in 1926 and then demolished in 1960. Uh, the mathematics of it falls apart again. So many of these things, when you look at them properly, you find that they're mathematically incoherent. Uh, but of course, again, neoclassicals ignore that result. Yeah. And they even think they won that debate with Schraffer, even though Paul Samuelson conceded defeat. Let's talk about energy and uh, the real world. Uh, you know, for example, in relation to climate change, neoclassical economists often look at 
weather events as exogenous shocks, but given the the feedback loop with the human economy, uh, what's happening in Australia now, that, that's an endogenous shock, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, I've been a critic of neoclassical economics for pretty much 50 years now, and I have never seen garbage as bad as, as in the work of William Nordhaus and his other so-called climate change economist colleagues, because they came at it literally to deny the dangers of climate change. So they, they're not deniers in the sense that they say that there is no you know, carbon dioxide is not causing a temperature increase. They're saying that's happening. But what they're saying is we're going to assume that the temperature increase caused by global warming, we can get data on that now by comparing temperature and GDP in different parts of the United States. And by seeing how much temperature varies uh, GDP today, we can predict the impact of climate change. Now, that is stupid beyond belief because it's saying that, like, you know, because New York's a bit warmer, warmer than uh, Dakota, North Dakota and wealthier and Florida's warmer than New York and poorer, we can approximate the impact of climate change by using a simple quadratic to measure the um, impact of increasing temperature on GDP. And therefore, Nordhaus, in his, one of his most recent papers, 2018, I think it was, in the American Economic Review, said that a six-degree increase in temperature would cause an 8% fall in GDP. Now, if you've read any realistic books about climate change, Mark Linas's Six Degrees is the one I'm thinking of. Six degrees will be pretty much enough to drive most of the species on the planet extinct. And therefore, they haven't denied that climate change is happening. They've trivialised it. And that is a major reason why we've done nothing about it of any significance until we're starting to see events like those in Sydney. So one of the questions we always love to ask uh, folks on the podcast is the benevolent dictator question. Uh-huh. Which is if Steve Keen was the benevolent dictator of, of the, planet. the planet, we'll give you the whole planet. Yeah, the whole planet. You should just, just the United States, but yeah. with you, you, you know. Since we're talking about climate change, let's make well, it the or whole just planet. global economic system. What would you do? Well, first of all, I'd shut down all the economics departments and burn the books. That'd be the last <laughs> piece of carbon worth adding to the atmosphere. Yeah, we, we could just um, bury the books. Yeah. Carbon sequestration. That's true. Yeah. Actually, it'd be better to bury the economists as well. That'd work pretty good too. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> Uh, you know, after that, I think we, we're already seeing the impact of a, a one degree increase in temperature on the planet. Uh, I think you may have seen a studies today saying that the increase in the temperature of the ocean is equivalent to blowing five Hiroshima bombs per second, which is, you know, like in other terms, that's 100,000 of the, of the buggers a, a, a day that we're adding to the temperature level of the planet and not expecting it to change the, the, the mechanics all that much. We've massively overshot the capacity of the planet to cope with the load we're putting on the biosphere. So we have to go into rationing. And I'd bring in a carbon rationing scheme, which would, rather than carbon pricing, which I think has been a complete failure and been politically outmaneuvered as well by the, by the coal interests and so on, I'd bring in a, a parallel currency where every purchase was made using both money and carbon credits. And you would initially start just to make it something which would be popular and uh, you use a central bank digital currency to give everybody an annual allocation of carbon credits. You could give the, the, the amount given per person could be far higher than the current average, meaning poor people would never exhaust their carbon credits, but rich people would. And therefore, they would have to buy carbon credits off the poor. And that would be a system which would in immediately mean that the, the wealthy are paying for the carbon cost they're putting on the planet, uh, even before you started bringing the level down to the point to start reducing aggregate consumption. That would be the first thing, those first two things I'd do. Hmm. 
That's an interesting idea. And I'd also have a debt jubilee, pardon me, sort of a, a modern debt jubilee. I'd use the state's capacity to create money to give everybody an equivalent amount of, of money which had to be used to pay debt down if you were uh, in debt. If you weren't in debt, you got a cash injection. Now, if you had an economy which is already moderately okay in terms of aggregate demand and employment and so on, and in a, in a sort of peripheral way, that's true of the American economy right now, you could specify that the people who got the money that they uh, and didn't have debt uh, would have to buy shares which were newly issued by cor corporations which would be used to reduce corporate debt and you democratize capitalism at the same time as reducing the debt level. So it eliminate the debt, uh, uh, reduce the debt by a factor of four or five uh, from say 150% now back to about 40% of GDP which is a sustainable level. Uh, I'd make that a major policy objective to keep private debt down and I'd also use carbon rationing to be ready to both to redistribute from the wealthy to the poor at the moment and also to be ready to bring the rationing down when we realize just how badly we've damaged the biosphere. And this would be good for the economy, right? Well, yes, in one sense, but I think we've, we're using far too much energy and we, we haven't built the facilities for you know, non-carbon generating energy production to make up for the extent to which we need to drop um, drop the carbon load we're putting into the plant. We need to get to zero carbon now. And that's, if you look at the genuine climate scientists, not the twerps who write in economics, but the genuine scientists, uh, the Michael Manns of the world and so on. Uh, we have to hit zero carbon now to have any chance of avoiding a, a, two, a two or three degree increase in temperature. And that will eliminate human civilization. But it's this garbage that will cause a couple of percent fall in GDP. No, it won't. It'll cause a total breakdown of our production systems. Again, things like you're seeing happening in Australia right now with wildfires wiping out agricultural regions and being destroying and killing billions of animals, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so we have to be ready to drastically drop our energy consumption. Uh, and that might be a factor of like looking at the current level of labor putting on the planet, it could be a factor of two or three reduction in energy consumption. That is not a booming economy. I'm not going to pretend that. Uh, another question we, all, we ask of all our guests, why do you do this work? <laughs> um, because I believe in reality. And we, we have to, uh, we, the one thing humans have added to the planet that other species haven't done is accumulating knowledge over time. And I'm enraged to see something pretending to be knowledge, which is actually myth. And that's neoclassical economics and those are extreme Marxian economics too. So I, I want to get a realistic approach to economics first and foremost. And I just realized that we've got people stuck in groupthink and both the extreme left with the Marxist world and the extreme right with the neoclassicals that are giving us fantasies rather than understanding of reality. So I want us to understand the world we live in and I want us to preserve it as well. I'm curious, what do you think is more likely to survive, capitalism or the planet? <laughs> Oh, the planet. There's actually a wonderful book on economics that I read about 30 years ago, or thereabouts, called Dynamic Economic Systems by a mathematician called John Blatt. And in the beginning of the book, he was castigating economists and not understanding dynamics. And he said, it, it is some, some would say that capitalism itself may cease as a social system before economists understand its dynamics. And at the time that I read it first, I thought that was great hyperbole. I now think it's probably going to come true. They've so much pushed this idea of a market approach to everything. Don't touch inequality. Don't touch energy and so on and so forth, that when we realize we've been totally hoodwinked by that, we're going to 
to have to go into a command economy, pretty much a militaristic economy, to reduce the damage we're doing to the planet and have any hope of having human civilization survive. That'll be a war economy. It won't be a capitalist one. So neoclassical economists will kill capitalism. Well, on that happy note, <laughs> uh, we'd love to thank you for being on. And I hope that we get to have many more conversations like this. It was absolutely fascinating. Yeah, you know, I'd like to I'd definitely love to follow up on that front as well. I want to be on your podcast. <laughs> yeah, look, that's it. That's a deal. That'd be great fun. Okay, I love it. Okay, I love it. Thanks, Nick. Okay, man. Thanks, okay. mate. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. So incredibly fun, wonky conversation, the kind that we like to have Correct. here in the office, but a, a little depressing diagnosis near the end yeah. where Professor Keene says that uh, neoclassical economics is going to end up undermining capitalism. Correct. And will I, will know, it? Yeah, I think he's right. And he, he also made a, a point about climate so, change. Okay, so podcast over, capitalism's yeah. <laughs> dead. Marx exactly. was right, yeah. grave diggers and all that. Yeah, exactly. No, and he also made an interesting point about climate change, right, being the other big threat. And, you know, Goldie, it's interesting because my first call this morning for an hour was with a person I cannot name, but a very important person on planet Earth who has a lot to do with deploying resources to fix things. And he and I were talking about the intersection between climate change and neoliberalism and inequality and whether the interaction between these two things was changing people's minds. And, and as we talked about it and I reflected on it, what seemed really clear to me is that the neoliberal framing of the climate crisis is exactly the same, of course, as the neoliberal framing of the inequality crisis. It either doesn't exist, right, or to fix it means to take a step backward, not forward, right? That the William Nordhaus, this is, and this is an economist who won a, a Nobel Prize for this nonsense, which is ridiculous. This analysis that there's this cost-benefit. Right, you're going to do a cost-benefit analysis of whether or not to save the planet. Yes, right. That, nah, that we it's could, too expensive. Exactly, let it die. Exactly. It, we could address climate change, but then we would be poorer. Is exactly the same of line a line of argument is well, we could raise wages. But then we'd be poor, right? Then we'd, you know, lose jobs. And his question was, was that changing the culture? And I, upon reflection, I really think it is because particularly among younger people who are experiencing these two lies simultaneously, who have been told that the less they make, the better off they'll be. And the less we address climate change, the better off the world will be. And these are both obviously lies. And neoliberalism, therefore, is being revealed as a lie from essentially two angles, if you will, from the climate angle and the sort of political economy angle, although they're inextricably intertwined in some ways. And so, you know, I think that this is really worth kind of surfacing and thinking about. But, you know, we really never did get from Steve what the alternative is. We didn't have enough time. But I do think that, you know, it is... Well, well, well one, the alternative is... A, not neoclassical economics. Yes. But I mean, what the glorious future could be. <laughs> right. And, you know, the glorious future is a future in which instead of the median wage for an American worker is $36,000 a year is, you know, if they'd fully participated in productivity growth, it'd be more like $60,000 a year. And under that scenario, uh, we wouldn't have a housing affordability crisis and you know, a person who worked in a restaurant 
could lead a dignified life and raise a family and take vacations, take vacations, eat in restaurants. That's right. <laughs> if we had a, a healthcare system equal in quality to, you know, let's say Singapore's, <laughs> uh, you know, we'd spend five or seven percent less GDP on healthcare than we presently do, and could deploy those resources. You know, a couple to, trillion dollars, couple trillion dollars just a year, to spend on to, other things like education or infrastructure or whatever it is plus of course if people made sixty thousand dollars rather than thirty thousand dollars you think about the tax receipts the government would receive they'd be twice or three times as high and we wouldn't have a federal deficit either and again this this is not an impossible future for us this is something that we could choose to have if we can surmount the forces that don't want it to happen. Right. And instead of you being like a thousand times wealthier than me, you might only be 500 times wealthier than right. me. Yeah. My God, what would you do? <laughs> In the next episode of Pitchfork Economics, we're going to talk about the barriers to having an inclusive economy. Should be really interesting. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. The magic happens in Seattle in partnership with the Young Turks Network. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.